still can't figure out how to have water <laughs> up here in advance. Well, that was emotional. And uh, yeah, I was sitting out in the lobby with people and like having body memories of eating bagels. And like, it's hard to sit at those tables and not drink coffee and eat our bagels. Like, <sighs> Jesus, help us to be present with you. Still our hearts for at least a minute. We open ourselves to your presence, oh God. Amen. Well, I attended my first church service when I was 25, by which I mean that was the first time I had ever been in a church. Um, I spent the first several years of my life in a synagogue and then many years in no religious or faith community. But it, my first experience in a church was sort of like those science fiction books or movies where somebody's walking along and suddenly they're sucked into a different time and space and they find themselves in a different world and they're going, oh my gosh, where am I and what's going on? So the first time I walked into a church, um, it's just a particular one that I went to. There's a room full of people, and not a few, but many, many people have their arms like way up in the air, and they're kind of swoony, like in this kind of ecstatic-y way, and some are like very, very passionate about it, and I, I've never seen anything um, like this in the synagogue, and then I'm trying to listen to what they're singing. Now, truthfully, all the songs we ever sang in the synagogue were in Hebrew. So I wasn't prepared for this anyway, but then I'm listening and it appears to me that these words can be almost romantic. Like there are these love songs to God, which I'm trying to think, uh, like how does this work? It seemed a little bit intimate. And then I realized that there's sort of a different vocabulary that these people um, are using. Like anytime something good happened, if I said, oh, that job that I applied for, I actually got it. Praise God, 80. Like, never heard those words together before that. You know, this, a nice day, oh, praise God. And then um, it seemed like no matter what kind of story I would share, I was met with, oh, I'll pray for you. I actually never heard that growing up in my home. Nobody ever said, I'll pray for you. I don't know if they did or didn't. We didn't think of it. We didn't conceive it that way. But suddenly it was always, I'll pray for you. Then I quickly learned that anything good in my new faith community was attributed to God and anything bad in my faith community was uh, attributed to the enemy, to Satan, was something demonic. Now, I have to say that I was a quick study. I watched and I listened, and before long, I could hallelujah um, with the best of them. And even as I'm making fun a little bit, the truth is I spent many years in this community, and they were glorious but it did take me a long time to understand the difference between fitting in and belonging. So we're gonna show a quick clip with Brene Brown tackling this. I was so shocked to learn in the research that the opposite of belonging is fitting in. Because fitting in is assessing a group of people 
and thinking, who do I need to be? What do I need to say? What do I need to wear? How do I need to act? And changing who you are. And true belonging never asks us to change who we are. It demands that we be who we are. Because if we, if we, be, if we fit in because how we've changed ourselves, that's not belonging. That's not belonging because you betrayed yourself for other people. Mm. And that's not sustainable. So Brene Brown says that fitting in is the opposite of belonging. And I honestly, when I listened to that, I found it a little bit mind-boggling because I feel like I have been fitting in forever. I had the wrong Myers-Briggs letters growing up in my family. That's a personality test for anyone who doesn't know. But I remember I started writing poetry when I was seven. It wasn't that good, but nobody wrote poetry or read poetry in my family. And a year later, I'm crying as I'm throwing our kosher meat leftovers down the garbage disposal, being aware of food insecurity around us. And all my parents wanted was a normal kid. And in school, I learned to fit in as a woman. I've learned to fit in in the church. I've learned to fit in. So I'm thinking, like, what are you talking about, Brene? And I found myself going, so wait, fitting in isn't good. Like, how can that be? In what world could I possibly just uh, belong? And many of you have had to fit in your whole life, right? That is what you do. You figure out what it means to figure out and uh, to fit in in the organization or institution or your family. We become students of culture. We watch what's happening around us, and especially if you're female, and especially if you're not majority culture in any way. And so this morning, I want to propose, along with Brene, that what we all yearn for in life, actually, is for belonging, for being loved and accepted for who we are, for being seen and known for who we are as we move more authentically through life. And I think that the Apostle Paul recognized how absolutely difficult this is for humans to pull off. So he gave us a metaphor um, that I think is trying to get at this. So it's in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read from chapter 12. It's a little bit long, but hang with it and see what he's trying to say here. So it starts with there are different kinds of gifts. We might say talents or abilities, but the same spirit, the same God distributes them. There's different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There's different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone is the same God at work. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. We were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would for not, for, not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if an ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, 
it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the, in the body, every one of them, just as God wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put together, put the body together, given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part of the body suffers, every part suffers with it, and if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Okay, so a quick summary. It seems like Paul is responding to a valuing system of some kind, right? So some kind of hierarchy of giftings or of talents or, or abilities um, that are happening in the churches of Corinth and it's not working. Like whatever system they have of hierarchy, it isn't working. So he says, ah, hey you guys, could we maybe not value one person's abilities over another, like this doesn't seem to be working. And the truth is it, it takes all kinds of gifts, all kinds of talents to make any community work. So in most organizations um, that I've been part of, there is some kind of explicit or implicit in-group. And something about you makes a way for you or it doesn't. So your talents, your gender identification, your skin color, your sexuality, maybe it's your marital status. But you know if you're in or if you're not and you wish you were. I remember trying to navigate these dynamics as a grade school kid. I, I'm trying to figure out like what it takes to be in the cool crowd. We used the word popular. I don't know if that's what people say today, but everybody knew who was popular. We, you know, we had little ways of uh, demonstrating that. There were lots of stories around who the popular kids, and I remember trying to like study like what that was like, what it would take, because I thought that was what it would take to make it, to feel okay about myself. So Mary Pfeiffer is a psychologist who I have now followed um, for decades, um, who does research, and she claims that students, and girls in particular, actually lose part of themselves if they choose to fit in in high school. Like, that seems to be a low bar. Like, just fitting in, they lose part of themselves. In other words, she says, um, the process of fitting in demands that we walk away from our true self. 
So I think Paul understands this. I think he's saying, you guys, this is not a picture of heaven. This is not my understanding of the kingdom, or we would say the kingdom of God. He says, for one thing, it doesn't make sense. We don't want all teachers. We don't want all healers. We need people who are spreading the good news of God's love. We need people whose hearts are broken for people in need. So essentially, Paul is trying to give us an imagination for a place where there is no in-group, for community, communities where there is no in-group by equaling everyone. So if I sensed Paul's system in my early years or even my early church attending years, rather than uh, figuring out how to fit in, I would have been figuring out how to be me. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, so I read out of chapter 12, but it starts out, his letter starts out by acknowledging you guys in your churches, there is all this conflict, like things are not working, there's jealousy, there's quarreling, there's fights over who to follow. So Paul goes out of his way in the letter to level the playing field. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were before you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, which is not a really nice thing to say to your friends and people who are coming to your church. Like, not many of you were influential. Not many of you were from noble birth, but God chose the foolish things. So he's now calling them foolish. Um, of the world to shame the wise, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the lowly of this world, the despised, and he goes on. And it's like he's saying, like, listen, I've known you guys for a while and none of you is that hot stuff. And then he says the same thing about himself. He says, and so it is with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. And it's not that he's trying to diminish anyone, but the whole book is trying to make space for everyone. Like wherever they are, whoever they are, he's trying to allow for our us-ness, for our me-ness. And Paul's lists in the New Testament are never intended uh, to be exhausted. So I wonder if we could expand his list to include whatever it is that it is in us that we bring to our communities. Compassion, kindness, discernment, financial acumen, creativity, beauty, leadership, teaching, art, love, wisdom, service. So here are a few takeaways from the passage. Number one, Paul's words invite us to evaluate the systems or organizations that we are a part of. And we can ask questions, right? Like, what and who is valued here? Do you, do I feel valued? Are you able to be you in the systems that you're a part of? Is there an in-group? Who are the heroes? What are the stories that are being told? My daughter-in-law is an African-American history scholar. Um, and we were talking about this last week. And she was describing one of the real costs 
of Martin Luther King um, being so heroized. Of course, she wasn't saying he wasn't a hero. We all know that he was. But being so heroized that he needs to be perfect and that the many, many others who also marched in Selma, who also participated in boycotts, who also were beaten, remain um, nameless or relatively unknown. The whole phenomenon is honestly something that we think about a lot here at Sanctuary. Early on when we planted the church, there was definitely an in-group. People like knew who's in the in-group, because I know they would talk to me and they, like, they would say something like, oh, do you have to be a vegetarian? To like, and we're like, uh, we eat meat. Um, do you have to be an artist or a musician? So the particular people who we attracted early on must have, um, uh, had particular qualities, and then people felt if they didn't have those qualities, they didn't quite fit in. And so as much as we didn't do that intentionally, we nonetheless created a culture where certain things were valued and rewarded. Um, in a lot of churches, the senior pastor has celebrity status. Like, they are the hero. They're the anointed ones. So there's a magazine that maybe some of you have heard of called Christianity Today. And Christianity Today recently put out um, a podcast that I found quite interesting. And it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Um, and so it's the story of a church culture that run, ran amok. So it was a lead pastor who had definite uh, celebrity status that went unchecked. This was a church of like 15,000 people with millions of followers around the world and a large movement that it was attached to. Um, and his celebrity status went unchecked, like he had complete control of his organization until it imploded. Um, and many, many, many people were harmed. Um, it was gross, it was destructive. However well we do at it, our goal here is to recognize and to invite the abilities and talents brought by everyone and the inherent goodness and blessedness of every person um, who calls sanctuary their home. Number two, piggybacking on this, is the awareness that it helps to understand what your organization rewards. Like maybe it rewards allegiance, or maybe it rewards yes women, or yes men, or maybe it rewards a certain look or a certain talent. As a faith community, we choose at least we try to not incentivize typical measures of success. Because what this does is it allows us to celebrate our own personal triumphs, our own overcomings, our own advancements. We get to celebrate our individual um, and our corporate journeys. So Rick Warren um, is a pastor of Purpose Driven Church, I mean of a church in Saddleback, um, and he wrote a book called Purpose Driven Life, which I think sold more copies than almost anything except for the Bible, um, and of the Purpose Driven Church, which I kind of love. I love the idea of intentionality in our life. But he also created something that a lot of churches grabbed onto, which was a, a diamond like, when you came to church, this is how you advanced. You know, you, you attended church, and then you became a member of the church, and then you learned certain things, and you became a leader of the church, and maybe then you became a leader. And this was a big thing for church communities to kind of figure out. And we tried this for a little while, and we realized that it wasn't working for us. And Beth Fega, who... Um, 
uh, some of you know, created, she was on staff and she created for us, I tried to find it, but it was this like kind of million different pathways to get wherever uh, people were going so that they could respond to their own internal call. Uh, realizing that there was no just one um, prescribed way for us to get where God was inviting us. Number three, Paul invites us to name what we bring um, to the institutions and organizations we're part of. So if we're afoot, then we acknowledge our footness. One of my favorite things about COVID was spending um, time with a couple of young women in the church. We would sit on my porch and we would talk um, every couple months. And mainly what we talked about was just what it meant to be us. These young women, young women were doing the internal work of... Um, of moving beyond fitting in to belonging. So they talked about the traumas in their life. They talked about where they felt held back. They talked about where they felt most free. They talked about um, relationships and how changing and growing in your life can make existing friendships challenging. And all these conversations were in service of their understanding and naming them. Um, and it was glorious. So Paul's invitation to us is to do the work of being able to name ourselves. Um, and often this isn't easy. We tend to minimize, um, uh, if someone compliments us, we tend to minimize it. Or maybe we'll say, oh yeah, I know it's the one thing I'm good at, but there are so many things that I can't do at all. It's kind of hard for us to just stay present um, with who we are and the gifts that God has given us. We're gonna take just 10 seconds here, because um, I realize we're running a little bit late, and before we um, finish, and what I wanna do is ask you to take a couple seconds just to relax, close your eyes if you want, and I want you to name yourself, like, if you imagined God coming and saying, these are the things that I see in you, that I love about you, only you're doing it for yourself. Like, what are the things that make me me? What are the things that I could celebrate? And we'll just take a few seconds with that. How did you do? Like, is it awkward? Is it easy? Did you come up with a lot of things? Could you readily name the things that you love that God's put in you? And finally, um, number four, Paul invites us to invert the world's order. The world says, do you have money? Do you have a degree? Are you physically strong? Are you emotionally present? Are you healthy? Are you able-bodied, cisgendered? Are you white? Are you male? And Paul says, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those parts that we think are less 
and the parts we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. Paul's invitation to us is super radical. It's crazy enough that he invites us to do away with our hierarchical valuations. But he says that's not enough. He says those who have been denied, those who have been overlooked, those who have been harmed, are the ones who must shine. So I'll close with this. It has taken me a long time to understand the difference of fitting in and belonging. And not just to understand it, but to um, embody it, um, to embody belonging. And I find it subversive um, because most organizations, right, they want us to fit in. It's to an organization's advantage if we do that hard work of figuring out what is required of us to fit in. When we left the movement we were part of and had been for so many years, we did so because we felt our increasing incompatibility over our growing conviction around inclusion, LGBTQ inclusion. Um, and that really was the reason for me. I loved the movement we were a part of. I had a lot of friends. I had a certain amount of responsibility beyond our local community. Um, I was far from running the show, but I had some regional um, and national leadership. And if I'm honest, I was terrified in some ways about leaving because I had learned to fit in and I was good at it and people loved me. And I don't think that I could afford to understand completely the difference of fitting in and belonging. Right? We have to think about that in our families, and our organizations, our systems. I don't think I could afford to. When we first left, all I felt was wrenching. Like if you imagine a row of paper dolls, I felt like I had just been cut out of that uh, row that I had been attached to for decades. Like, uh, wait, um, I've been attached and this hurts so much because um, this is a part of me that I'm losing. And those losses, truthfully, remain painful to this day. I miss the women who were my close friends in that movement. And it probably took me two years um, to realize that even though I did leave, um, need to leave that um, movement because of our LGBTQ, um, friends and convictions that I really needed to leave the movement so that I could be me. So that maybe for the first time ever I could shout from the mountains, I could declare my meanness, I could say this is who I am without needing to fit in to what somebody's telling me is the right thing to do. It was the first time that I could say I am me. I am 80, I am, I am a lover, I am a leader, I'm compassionate, I'm expansive. I love this mystery that we call God that's beyond my comprehension, that's constant me, constantly pulling me closer. I love stories, I love depth, I love being with people in their harder moments. I love every opportunity to really see somebody as they are, as well as being seen in all my glory. I love my family, the privilege of being part of this family. When I left the movement, I was walking away from fitting in, but I had no idea that I was walking 
toward belonging. And that is what Paul's invitation to us is this morning. It's to name and to celebrate all of who uh, we are. So we're going to move now into communion. Jesus, we thank you for the distinction. We thank you that even though there are places in our world where we have to fit in to be accepted, that that's not your ultimate invitation. Your ultimate invitation for us is to belong, is to find ourselves and to be ourselves and to celebrate ourselves and to declare ourselves. as we come to you this morning, God, and we take the bread that is your body broken for us, and as we drink the juice that is your blood shed for us, God. We recognize that you created us in the same way you created the amazing world around us. And the best way we can honor you is by becoming the us you've created us to be. We love you, Jesus. Amen. If you wish to be fed by Jesus, there are two stations in the front and two in the back. And is it in the front that has the individually wrapped ones? I think is in the front.